Welcome to the Quantify Body episode 5. I'm your host, Damien Blenkinsop. We've come across methylation and epigenetics already a few times in the short history of the quantified body, as some of the guests have related to the importance of these topics for health today. Today we're going to look specifically at methylation, its role and importance for many body functions, how it can enhance our quality of life and performance when running properly, or expose us to greater health risks like heart disease or cancer when it doesn't. This for me is key for everyone. Addressing methylation SNPs, which is basically genetic mutations that we all have some of, and related biochemical imbalances, has personally made a very big impact to the quality of my life. It's eliminated issues like migraine headaches, improved my sleep, and enhanced my quality of life and productivity by smoothing out mood dips and bumps. And it helped also to heal my body from chronic disease. Because it affects so many people in so many ways, this is a topic that we're going to hear a lot more about over the next years. It's only just started. Enter today's guest, Dr. Ben Lynch. He is one of the people who has led the way in researching and helping both physicians and consumers understand methylation and how it is affecting them. Dr. Lynch is well known for his work and insights into treating methylation defects, which has been his focus since 2011 now. He has done some incredibly detailed work in mapping out the various methylation pathways, how environmental and lifestyle factors affect them, and how they can be supported. As a result of this, he's been a highlight appearance of many of the conferences which have topics which are related to methylation and are growing in number these days. His background is in environmental medicine and biochemistry, and he has a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. He has worked with hundreds of people with methylation defects. Notably, he started with the MTHFR gene, which is also known as the motherfucker gene, because of the risk this defect represents for cardiovascular health, which is pretty particular. In this interview, besides insights into methylation, Ben makes some excellent points on how and when biomarker data is useful and what the most impactful actions are that we can take to improve our health and performance. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview and got a lot out of it, so I hope you do too. To get the show notes with the MP3 download and the interview transcript, as well as links to everything we talk about on the show, including links to connect with Dr. Ben Lynch and learn more from him, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episode five. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Dr. Lynch, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Damien. First of all, I wanted to jump in to look at the area of methylation. How does it and how it relates to our health, performance, and longevity? What are the links with these objectives we have today? With methylation. Yeah. How does methylation impact our health, our performance, our longevity, our whole being, basically? Well, it's central. It's absolutely central. So it's you know, the mitochondria, the engines of the car, and it seems like methylation seems to balance all how everything works. So methylation is needed in order to create certain things in the body. So it creates SAMe. A lot of us know what SAMe is. SAMe is a primary methyl donor, which goes around the body and it helps make our neurotransmitters, gets rid of them, helps make a compound called phosphatidylcholine for our cell membranes. When we have quite a bit of methylation around, the body will say, okay, we've got too much, and it'll speed up one enzyme to help make glutathione. It will make creatine, 
So our kidneys and our, our muscles will be happy. So you can see a lot of issues with low creatine in people. It uh, balances our immune system. It helps make immune cells. It supports creatine and CoQ10 formation, which are pretty important. It's very central. It helps regulate genes, turning them on and off. In fact, most of our genes are turned off. And if we have low methylation, then some of these genes will turn on and they will stay on. And then we know what that hap- what happens from that. The cancer can ensue. So those are some of them. And there are probably some other major ones that I'm not remembering offhand. Yeah, that, that's great. So does it play a role in detoxification? Yes, it does. Because methylation is a very small role if you look in the, the toxicology textbook. And when I read that, I was kind of disheartened and sad. But at the same time, when there's a lot of SAMI around, then SAMI will help promote the enzyme which takes homocysteine and moves it into glutathione. So homocysteine, which is a, I guess some people call it the evil marker on labs. If it's too low, that's a problem. If it's too high, it's a problem. So we need to make sure there's adequate homocysteine because homocysteine will actually move into glutathione production. So that in itself is a pretty direct connection between a major thing for xenobiotic detoxification and, and glutathione is, is a mothership for that. Yeah. Yeah. So to let the people at home visualize what methylation is, would you call it, is it like a biochemical process where the enzymes are many biochemical processes taking place through a whole line of enzymes and which are required for the body? How would you explain it in a simple way or how do you tend to explain it? I would say that methylation is a process by which there's a carbon with three hydrogens, which is a methyl group, will bind and dock to certain things. And it will bind to neurotransmitters, it will bind to chemicals, it will bind to DNA, but it seems the biggest methyl donor in the body, again, is methionine, and what that SAM does. And so methylation is a long, complicated process, and there's multiple methyl donors. Choline is one, SAMe is another one, uh, methylfolate, methylcobalamin, glycine, all these are, are methyl donors because the body creates redundancy. But it's basically these methyl groups, as you said, will support various enzymes in the body. And then these enzymes are proteins which do work. If these enzymes are malfunctioning due to various toxins in the environment or nutrient deficiencies, then these enzymes won't be able to do work. And if you back up even one step further, where do enzymes come from? And enzymes come from genes. So if these genes are not functioning very well, then they will not be able to make their end product. And so everybody knows about the MTHFR gene defect. So making methylfolate needs that MTHFR enzyme, that MTHFR gene to work, so then it can go and do its job. In some, I would say that methylation is the process by which genes will produce an end product, which then will have a certain set of functions and sometimes a singular function and there's hundreds and hundreds of possibly even thousands of functions that are going on in our body that are due to methylation and i know that there's hundreds and there could be more than that you need to also understand too that it's it's much bigger than that because think of a pyramidal shape so at the top of the pyramid you might have mthfr and it's just one gene but the downstream effect of that one gene will form a, a base of that pyramid so that impact of one gene not working is really, really broad. Yeah, it kind of cascade down pretty quickly. That's right. So what are the biggest methylation challenges that you see or the most common ones? 
Stress. Stress, food, intake, water, I would say are the biggest ones. And I, I say that because if you work as a physician, you work with patients, and if you can modify their diet and their lifestyle alone, then their methylation will balance very, very well. Of course, there's other things too, like toxins, environment, lead, and yeast overgrowth, producing acetaldehyde and alcohol uh, intake. Those are other big ones. But I would say food and water and stress because stress is a big one because glucocorticoids, cortisol, stimulate methylation. So you're saying, well, that's good, but it's, it is good. But if you have ongoing stress, you're pushing methylation all the time, which then means you need to be able to produce more methyl donors. And if you're eating McDonald's or you're eating inappropriately and you're not eating your leafy greens or your grass-fed meats, then your methylation is going to suffer. So if you're under chronic stress and you're eating carbs to make you happy, and you're not getting the proteins and the leafy greens, then you're going to be in big trouble. And it also goes back to our water. Our water levels here in America are pretty high in arsenic. And then so is our chicken because they use antibiotics laced with arsenic. Uh, and when they feed those chicken before they're, they're butchered. And so these, these chickens get bioaccumulation of arsenic throughout their life. And then we eat that chicken and then we eat another chicken and another chicken. So our bioaccumulation of arsenic goes up. And then you've got arsenic and rice, which is a big issue, and then uh, uh, greens as well. So it's our bioaccumulation of arsenic is a really big deal in the United States. And I think it's it's commonly missed. And arsenic is a real tough one to eliminate because it requires both glutathione and SAMe in order to get out of the body. So our primary methyl donor and our primary antioxidant or detoxification compound need to be in their prime in order to get arsenic out of the body. And if you just have one or the other, then arsenic transforms into a more brutal marker because our body will transform it into something that's more toxic. So just the basic lifestyle and diet being calm, I think is really important. And another thing too, I want to add to that really quick about stress is not only does cortisol increase uh, our methylation cycles, but what neurotransmitters increase from being stressed. We've got norepi and epi. So these things also require methylation to get rid of. So if the norepinephrine increases, then we need SAMe to convert norepinephrine to epinephrine. So again, that's very catabolic and stress in itself also it's very depleting of things like magnesium. And then we also, our adrenals might get shot and we might not be able to function very well and aldosterone levels drop. So now we're peeing out sodium and, and other minerals that we actually need. So it's, uh, it's a big deal. So stress is a big one. Right. So when you're talking about stress, it's both emotional and physical. So it could be things you're doing like training. Yes. Good. Excellent point. Yeah. Training, overtraining is a huge problem. I was a collegiate athlete at University of Washington. I did crew there, and I wish I knew about this. I would have been a way better athlete. But anyhow, creatine is a major user of SAMe, and the more muscle mass that you have, the more it takes for your body to make that creatine because your muscles will use up creatine. So if your methylation is deficient and you're a bodybuilder, then I know a lot of bodybuilders supplement with creatine, which is great, but some of it's garbage. There's definitely inferior forms of creatine out there, but if you're eating grass-fed meats and you're eating your veggies and uh, you're not overtraining, then creatine by itself is a very important. They say that creatine and phosphocholine consumes the majority of your SAMe in the body. I think creatine is about 70% of SAM's use. Right. 
In terms of genetic defects, you know, we, we hear about like the MTHFR and, and direct SNPs. How big of a role are they and how important is this in the population compared to the other factors you've spoken about? Well, I'd say that genetic factors are important, but not nearly as important as the lifestyle and diet. So the epigenetics are what controls the genetics. The epigenetics are the things that are around the outside of the actual gene itself. Just the environment, our perception in the environment, as Bruce Lipton so beautifully explains in his videos or in his book, The Biology of Belief, the epigenetics are, are so far more important than the genetics themselves. Have you ever watched that video, The Tale of Two Mice from Nova? Have you seen that? Haven't seen that. Yeah, so your listeners need to see that. So if you Google Nova, The Tale of Two Mice, you will see a, a perfect example of what I'm talking about because these mice, I won't get into too much detail, but there's these two mice and they're genetically identical. They're called the goody mice, and they're genetically predisposed to cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. They're genetically predispositioned for this. It means that they will go through life and get it if their lifestyle and diet are going to be a mess. And so what they did is this mouse had little baby pups, mice pups. The pups were divided equally, and they were genetically identical because they came from the same mom. They were absolutely genetically identical. They were divided in half. One group of these mice got methyl donors with their chow and the other group just got their standard chow now and they they also had some bpa in there that was another experiment because bpa messes up your methylation but anyhow the rats who were fed the baby rats who were fed the methyl donors and their rat chow did not go on in life and get diabetes cardiovascular risk or cancer and their fur was a lot healthier the other rats went on and they got basically everything under the sun so that's a perfect example of epigenetics. And another one that I like to talk about too is the queen bee. So the queen bee is genetically identical to all the other worker bees, but the epigenetics of them are, are totally different because the queen bee was nurtured and she's fed the royal jelly and all that. So that's a, another living example of how epigenetics is more important than genetics. Great, great. Thanks for making that point. I remember the rat mouse from uh, your Chicago presentation, actually. So is it worth us getting uh, like genetics tested for to identify SNPs in MTHFR and other areas? Or do you think it's more worthwhile working on our lifestyle first and then maybe later if we still have some problems, look at the testing? Because the other question I have is, doesn't everyone have SNPs in some of the methylation process? We were just talking about how it's got hundreds of parts, working parts to it. So isn't it everyone who's got some SNPs in part of the chain that's taking place in our body? So we're pretty much all going around a bit and some of us are healthy, some of us are not so healthy. So like you said, is it more about the epigenetic side of it? Well, it definitely is, but you have to take every situation in context for that specific individual. So while genetic testing is useful, I mean, that's how evolution occurs. We evolve through mutations and these mutations can be hopefully selected and be an improvement for something in the future. So not all mutations are bad. They have their various functions. Even the MTHFR has its benefits and COMT have their benefits. But I would say if the person is going along, they're doing well, they're not going to doctors, they're not on various medications, they're just humming along, they're young, they're pretty confident in, in their health and how they're feeling, and there's not much family risk. If they look at their family, their family is a long life of good health and history, then I say it's not that big of an issue. Now, if you're born from a family that dies early, your parents are dying in their 50s or 60s, then you might want to be taking a moment, even if you're healthy, because a lot of athletes, as you know, might look and appear healthy, but the next thing they know, they're in a wheelchair or they're dead. 
And then they say, oh, this guy was a, had super high risk for cardiovascular disease or he had the APOE genes and he was not Alzheimer's risk and his cholesterol was looked normal. But when you look at the cholesterol subfractions, he was a mess. So sometimes you can just test for those things or you can look at the genetics or you can do both. Now, I'm all about disease prevention and optimizing lifestyles, especially in unborn children. So if someone is looking to get pregnant, then I absolutely recommend genetic testing through 23andMe and then running it through mthrsupport.com, which I have no affiliation, or these other things like Genetic Genie. The reason I say this is because there's specific genes which do mess up your methylation, and it's good to know which ones they are. And then you, with the proper education, you can bypass these things. Also, if your family line is cross if you look through history, it's like, oh, they're anxious, they had bipolar, or they had breast cancer, or they had various cancers, then again, I think it's important to, to do genetic testing just so you can see which genes are the issue. And if you know which ones are the issue, then you can more focus on that. So it has its places in both sides that you can and you can't, but it also depends on where you are mentally. If you think the genetic testing is going to scare you more than benefit you, then I wouldn't do it right away. I would maybe just start with MTHFR, work on that, or work on all the dietary lifestyle things so you can be less stressed out and then order genetic testing under some false name so that gives insurance uh, concerns you or in the future. We'd like to talk about what's going to have an impact. So some tests, you can get a test, but you can't really take much actions after that. So there's, there's not that much benefit. So it's nice to hear you talk about get your lifestyle fixed first. That's probably going to have a big impact. And then if you want to refine things, maybe some testing will help you get a bit further. Is that the way you look at it? Yeah. And I always tell doctors this because they, they come to conferences and they hear this term methylation and they see all these complicated pathways and they say, look, you know, you guys are already doing this. Diet and lifestyle are absolutely number one. Food and water and sleep and loved ones around you and getting some form of exercise are huge. And breathing fresh air and all these things are so, so important and the basics of not having a toxic environment around you too. So all those things sound very simple, but our current modern lifestyle are not conducive to any of it. They're plugged into their phones all the time and so on. So the basics lifestyle is so, so important. And I cannot tell you how many patients I've worked with with these genetic defects have gotten better with just the absolute basics. If you focus on the SNPs and you treat the SNPs, the genetic mutations or polymorphisms is a more, more appropriate term. So if you focus on these genetic variations and you give meds or supplements that, or even foods that target these specific genetic variations and you miss the big picture, you're going to be chasing your tail and you're not going to be going anywhere. So you got to do all the basic groundwork first. And I cannot stand when I see these genetic tests come back and there's long recommendations of a whole bunch of nutrients to take. And that just outright pisses me off, to be honest. And it's very self-centered and very incorrect because then these patients will never get better because they're taking supplements or meds or, or certain lifestyle things that are targeted to their genes. And that isn't right. You got to do big picture. That's great. Thank you for that clarification. I think one of the things is that we don't hear about methylation that much. It's still kind of a new topic. So what kind of chronic health issues or symptoms do you think methylation can be related to that people don't typically think of? Well, anxiety, anxiety, insomnia, what would be another one? Fatigue, depression, addictive disorders, 
generalized fatigue, skin issues, digestive issues in terms of if you have ulcerative colitis or, or Crohn's. I mean, there obviously there's a big picture there, but too, but methylation is a major component of that as well. Chemical sensitivity. You've got a long list. I guess the point is it's kind of there and it's this big important part we've been talking about, but there's not a lot of information about it there and how it links to all of that yet. Well, I think the best way to summarize that question and keep it as simple as possible is methylation has its fingers in every symptom out there. It's really, that's really in a nutshell. It might not be a direct effect, but it's definitely an indirect effect. So I would say whatever symptom is out there, methylation is playing a role somehow. So while it might not be the primary treatment thing to go after, it's definitely something that needs to be looked at in every patient no matter the, the symptoms or the condition, because it needs to be optimized all the time. And it's, it's constantly shifting. Methylation reactions are occurring in every single cell of your body, every single millisecond. It changes. It changes based upon how you're feeling, if you're stressed out, if you're overtraining. Uh, if you're overtraining, you're running, say, a marathon, and you're burning through all this ATP, and your muscles are using a bunch of creatine, and you're not resupplementing yourself, then you might be depressed and fatigued after. And you're just like, why in the hell am I depressed? I just ran a marathon and I won the damn thing, but I'm so depressed. So it's connected to everything. How do you think methylation relates to mitochondria and oxidative stress in the body? Because we're more aware of problems with mitochondria and oxidative stress causing chronic disease as well now. So how does methylation relate to those two things? From my understanding right now, it's an indirect thing and I'm trying to put the pieces together more succinctly so I can explain it better. But when you methylate, there's leftover things. When your SAMe does its job of saying making creatine, then after SAMe does its creatine, it, it makes SAW, acetylcysteine, homocysteine, and that homocysteine then will convert into adenosine. And we know what ATP is, adenosine triphosphate. So methylation does form adenosine through its end reactions. So it helps make this adenosine. And while it's not the primary formation of ATP, it's a big player because if your adenosine levels get built up for various reasons due to deficiencies in B6 or Krebs cycle intermediates, like uh, not intermediates, but end products there too, like NADH, your adenosine, if it gets too high, it will shift your metabolism. And we have shifts in metabolism in order to protect us. So if we're running, we're primarily... In the first few minutes, we're probably mostly going through aerobic energy. We're pyruvate's going to acetyl-CoA and it's making our NADH. But after a while, our muscles are going to be running out of those primary, it's going to be running out of acetyl-CoA and there's going to be adenosine that's going to be building up. And then that adenosine builds up, then it's going to be shifting pyruvate into lactate. And that's good. We need that anaerobic shift because our body can only fuel so much glycogen in the muscles. And then that shift in metabolism occurs so we can run off of lactate. The problem is some of these people are running off lactate all the time. And if their adenosine levels are high because their methylation cycle is inhibited, that's a serious problem because if your adenosine levels are high, it's gonna lead into metabolic disorders, it's gonna lead into diabetes, high cholesterol, fatty livers, and the end result of this is gonna be cancer and death. So a long-term metabolic shift that's due to elevated adenosine, which is comes from methylation is a serious issue and it's not looked at and getting tests and doctors to even know what adenosine is is a big problem and there's very few labs that look at pyruvate levels or adenosine levels they do look at lactate and lactate's a very important marker to look at 
But if you have fatty liver or your GGT or ALT or AST level uh, liver enzymes are elevated, then your adenosine is up and uh, you've got you've to fix that now. And I think that adenosine is a huge marker. And I've been working with doctors' data for the last few months. As you saw in Chicago, I was, I was beating them up, right, during that conference. And uh, they are coming out with adenosine on their methylation profile at some point here. So I'm very excited for that. Great. Obviously, I want to talk about some of the testing and the metrics and so on. Where would you start looking at if you've got a patient? Would it be like a 23andMe genetics test? Or would it be something more like a methylation profile from doctor's data that you were just talking about? Well, when you say where would I start, I mean, where would I start initially? Or? So we've been working on lifestyle and these things are fixed, but we still have some problems. So there's some things that aren't optimum. Are there certain tests you tend to go to first because you find them the most useful? Biomarkers that you're looking for because they help elucidate the situation more quickly or tell you a lot more and they're a lot more actionable? 23andMe, I will get if I'm, I'm struggling. So I'll order 23andMe. It takes about a month, month and a half to get. Then I'll have, if they, once they get that done, then I'll send them to Genetic Genie or MTGVR Support. And I like MTGVR Support Report better because there's some genes that I told them to get once they're on the report now, like GAMT for creatine, for example, or phosphatidylcholine production or vitamin A production. So just for the guys at home, they have to download their data for, from 23andMe in a file and then upload it into these other sites, right? That's right. And if you go to those websites, they will walk you through it. There's uh, diagrams, maybe in a small video of, of how to do that. I know there is on MTHR support. There's basic instructions, but it's very easy. But yes, you're right. So I'll do that. And then I'll, if money is an issue, and unfortunately it is for a lot of people, I'll do that 23andMe and then I'll just base everything off of signs and symptoms. And uh, once you get good at it, you can see these pathways in your head. But if you're not good at it initially, then I'd be getting that methylation profile from doctor's data. That's important to run. But again, you have to understand how to interpret it. And on seekingout.org, there's, a, there's an article on there, along with a podcast and a learning center about methylation profile analysis. And uh, I give a, a walkthrough of an actual test that I interpreted and I discuss why these markers are the way they are. And I give various recommendations. So that's a good thing to look at. So I would say methylation pathway. I like organic acids um, a lot. So you said uh, methylation, because uh, the doctor's data panel is called methylation profile, is it? Or is it pathway? Because there's another company I know you've mentioned before and I've used before. It also is health diagnostics. They used to be called vitamin diagnostics. Yeah, I love their test. The problem is the turnaround time is pretty bad, but it might be hit or miss. And I did hear from someone that if you call them for results and tell them to email you the results, it might speed up the return of the results by about three weeks. So that is worth mentioning of Health Diagnostics Research Institute. I think it's hdri dash usa.com or hdri-labs.com, something like this. Yeah, we'll put the links in the show. Okay, great. Their methylation test is the best out there right now. I mean, there's no question. So what do you like about that versus the doctor's data one, for example? What helps you? Well, doctor's data is basically, even Dr. Quigg has stated, the methylation profile of doctor's data is basically just a methionine cycle. And it, it touches the transsulfuration cycle just a tiny bit. But we have no idea what's going on in the folate pathway. And the folate pathway is a significant pathway that leads into the methionine cycle. And if we don't know what's going on there, we don't know why these markers are doing what they're doing in the methionine cycle. So you have to assume. And assuming is not good. You want to know. So the Health Diagnostics Research Institute, they give all the folate derivatives 
which is useful, the primary ones, which is very useful. They don't give the B12 in there, which I think would be nice, but you don't really need it because if you see methylfolate as elevated and tetrahydrofolate as low, then you can know right there that there's a methionine synthase block of some sort, whether it be 12 or oxidative stress or lead or yeast overgrowth or what have you. So I would say that health diagnostics is better in that regard. They also look at adenosine and adenosine is in the methionine cycle, but it's a beautiful marker once you understand how to use it. Again, I'm still learning, but I'm getting better at it. And I believe I know how to reduce it now. I know caffeine reduces adenosine, which is very interesting. That's good news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for those coffee drinkers, I'm not saying go and suck down coffee by the kilo but or by the gallon, but... Don't quit your coffee, your daily coffee. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of caffeine could be good, and especially with D-ribose. And I think some people too, is not to deviate too much, but this is something I've recently learned where if people aren't doing very well in terms of if they're getting post-workout fatigue or soreness, that D-ribose is something beautiful. D-ribose is really important for producing ATP and it's very demanding to produce in the body. So D-ribose and a little bit of caffeine prior to exercising might keep that adenosine level low. Then you might be able to use aerobic metabolism for a longer period of time before you shift into that lactic acid buildup, you know, the lactate. You might be increasing endurance uh, that way. But the labs, when it comes down to labs, if I'm going to order labs, what I really like to do is just they're expensive, but you just spend the money up front. Because if you order lab, one day you order the CBC and, and chem and you get your serum ferritin and all that in there, your basic labs. And you get those back, you find some things and you work on that. And you say, you know, you still got some symptoms. So now you order the CDSA and you look at the digestive function and you find some things there and you work on that. And you say, you know, we still have some issues and you get the organic acids and you find that you're low in, in B12 or something else. And if you keep doing these labs this way, then you're not connecting them. And the beautiful thing is if you order all these labs at once, you can lay them out on your desk and you can stare at them with this built-in pathway planner, which you had the privilege of staring at it in Chicago yeah. or maybe not. It's huge. Just for readers, uh, it's huge. Yeah. So I've got a whole new uh, updated one. So I'll get you a new copy, Damien, for uh, your listeners. So if you do all these tests at once and you look at it with the pathway planner, then you can see how everything interacts and why maybe their CBC is bad because of this and then this and this and this, or maybe why their methylation profile is bad because of that and this and that. And you can see the underlying causes and you can say, okay, look, we now we know we have a pathogen in your gut and you're anemic and your iron levels are low and your magnesium levels are low and uh, your homocysteine is high and your tetrahydrofolate is high and your yeast overgrowth is high. Now we can say, okay, now we have all this data and we can know why all these things are abnormal now. And the underlying causes are this, this, and this. And so you work on those main underlying causes and you make such fast headway in the patient. It's an initial investment, but the speed in which your patient can get better is tenfold because you're not chasing things. Now, mind you, if the patient is typically, they're under 30, so they're 30 and younger, and their main complaints are not that serious, then would I do all this testing? No, I'd probably just do most things empirical, meaning I just go for the lifestyle and dietary changes without looking at, at some labs. But if it's the first, if they haven't had labs done for years, then I would go ahead and do all these testing too. So it depends on if they've already had some baseline testing done 
they've never had baseline testing done, then it needs to get done. Right. Well, so when you say baseline, it sounded like you're doing, how many tests are you doing? Stool tests, urine tests, you're doing the methylation? Yes. I will get you that list too for your listeners because I have a list. I do what's called a round table for doctors. So I'm going to Japan this fall and prior to going, I'm making them do all these different tests. And then what we're going to do is we're taking, they're going to share their patients that are struggling to get better. And I have a list of tests that I told them to get. And so I'll just get you that list if you like. Ion panel by Genova is pretty good. The ion panel looks at fatty acids, it looks at organic acids, it looks at amino acids, looks at uh, lipid peroxidation. So if you were to order just one test to keep it simple, then the ion panel with a CBC chem panel would be something to look at. But it's not perfect. No test is perfect. They all have holes, which is why I have a, a laundry list. But I think the ion panel by Genova is definitely a good start. So I guess one of your main points there is a lot of these tests are about biochemicals. They're not long-term markers. They're changing over time and they're connected to each other. So unless you get the whole picture like you're doing, then if you work on some problems with the CDSA, then the methylation test you get could be different and it might not fit with the problems you identified in the first place. You're looking in the wrong direction. Is it because the biochemicals are moving around too much? That's right. And they're not only are they moving around too much, but why are they moving around? So if you order, say, that methylation profile in the 23andMe, because you're a doctor that specializes in methylation, this is a big problem too, because methylation is not the tool, it's another tool. If the patient comes in, they come to you because you're the methylation expert, and you do MTHFR and the 23andMe and a methylation profile, and you just work on those things, then you could be missing the underlying picture of why their methylation is wrong in the first place. And I cannot tell you as a physician, I would slap myself in the face multiple times for missing screening for pathogens. And screening for pathogens is so hugely important because we're so susceptible to them now because of the stress and the lifestyle that we have and the environmental surroundings where the likelihood of us having a pathogen is so high, whether you have symptoms or not. And if you don't have symptoms, that is because you are supporting it through your lifestyle and diet or supplements or meds trying to mask the destruction that pathogen is doing on you. So my point on this is that if you order the methylation test or your CBC and you get the things back and you work on that, you might be missing the underlying picture of arsenic exposure or perhaps there's you know, a pathogen there. Maybe there's, there's lead or mercury or maybe there's mercury amalgams in their teeth or root canals that they've done now or festering anaerobic bacteria. That's why it's important to do all these tests first so you can see how all these things are. And I've recently learned too, I mean, some doctors already know this stuff, but it just takes forever to, to link everything. But iron, I had my wife, for example, her serum ferritin just doesn't go up, just will not climb. And her RBC magnesium too is just chronically low. It's, I have very good nutrients to work with this and with all the cofactors and everything. It's still low. Like, what the hell? And so, RBC Magnesium, I was reading this book, and I don't remember the title, but it's by Dr. Myhill, uh, M-Y-H-I-L-L, and uh, it's her new one. And she talks about RBC Magnesium being chronically low in people, possibly because at rest, I need to find a research citation to see if she's right or not, but she goes, at rest, 40% of ATP is utilized for moving minerals back and forth between the cell membrane. It's like, holy God. That's big. So if 40% of ATP at rest, not at exercise, but at rest, is to move sodium, potassium, and, and calcium, magnesium across the cell membrane, that's big. So magnesium has to be pumped in 
and so does potassium. So, and potassium is a huge component that I think most people are deficient in. But my point here is RBC magnesium, I mentioned ribose earlier, and this is also from my hill, that she thinks that if people are low, chronically low in uh, RBC, red blood cell magnesium, it might be because their D-ribose levels are too low because their ATP levels are too low. And I give my wife ribose, I've recommended to her, but is she compliant? Eh, Sometimes. And the serum ferritin is low, I believe, because pathogenic bacteria in the gut, which we have recently found from the CDSA by doctor's data, she has some pathogens in the gut and they suck up iron like crazy. So while we are taking these nutrients, these high quality nutrients, the pathogens in the gut are taking them all. And uh, if you have yeast overgrowth in the gut, then these things, the yeast are using your B1 and magnesium to make acetaldehyde, which then converting the ethanol, which is disrupting your methylation cycle. So the gut is so central too. So I would do the ion panel with the CDSA probably with first. And I, I like RBC. So the, the CDSA is the doctor's data stool test. I like that one. Versus uh, say Metametrics or some of the other ones. That yeah, there's use. a lot of them out there. I think Genova's is getting better. I didn't like Genova's for a long time. I think that GI stool effects was uh, not very good. I lacked doctor's data. I ran another one. I think I ran BioHealth and it came back with basically nothing. Everything was fine. I did it for my whole family and I didn't trust it. No way. And so I did the doctor's data and it came back with all this useful data. So it's very important that you order the right test too. Yeah. So are there any methylation related or other tests you've done, which you didn't find useful, whether it's for accuracy reasons that you didn't trust or other reasons? Well, I'd have to think about that one for a while. Mm. No, I think you mentioned in a presentation homocysteine. It's in all of the main labs like LabCorp and Quest and so on. And it's obviously something that lots of people are getting tested now. How do you find that test, for example? Well, homocysteine, it's good if it's high. So if it's high, it's useful. You know there's some type of blockage going on. And when I say high, I'm not talking about the standard range. I'm talking higher than seven in an adult. Now in kids, homocysteine levels tend to be lower. And I think it's they're lower. So a normal in a kid, say under 14 or so, I'm shooting from the hip. I have it somehow, I think in the forum of seeing.org. I, I need to remember the range is here. It's important. But anyhow, younger kids have younger homocysteine levels. So they might come back at five and he's like, oh, that's too low. I need to work it up. No, they naturally run low. Probably because methylation cycle is just humming along super quick because of their growth. So the younger you are, the more methylation you burn through because you're growing. Look at autism. I mean, their methylation cycles are, are messed up and they're, these kids are, are hurting big time. But homocysteine, my point here is homocysteine is a good marker if it's high. The problem is, is it's extremely rudimentary. We don't know why it's high. So it's important to know why it's high, but at least it's high. And so doctors might take some action and get some B12, B6, TMG and methylfolate and so on. But the problem is if it comes back low, as you saw Dr. Quigg lectured on about homocysteine and acidensial homocysteine and the cardiovascular risk patients, because you look at all these, there's research out there that says, look, you know, homocysteine levels are not correlated with cardiovascular risk. You say, well, BS, because all these other papers look at homocysteine and it is related cardiovascular disease. But some of these papers actually published are, are legit and they say homocysteine isn't. But now if you look at acidentyl homocysteine, acidentyl homocysteine levels can be elevated while the homocysteine levels are normal and they are correlated 
So those two things will be correlated to cardiovascular disease. So homocysteine, before you get to homocysteine, is s homocysteine. I think while your listeners are listening to this show, they should have this pathway popped up so they can follow me along a little bit. But s homocysteine is above homocysteine, and that pathway is bidirectional. SAW is s homocysteine. So SAW goes to homocysteine, but homocysteine also goes back to SAW. It goes two ways. Now, it's important to know that homocysteine goes back to SAW preferentially. So if you're to draw, if you write a you know, homocysteine on your piece of paper and homocysteine is your left hand, SAW is your right hand, there's going to be a bigger, heavier arrowhead moving from left to right from homocysteine to SAW than there is from SAW to homocysteine. So the pathway to moving back from homocysteine to SAW is, is fatter. And now if your SAW is elevated, now your adenosine can get elevated. And if your adenosine gets elevated, then it's metabolic syndrome, it's diabetes, it's, it's so on. So you're absolutely right that homocysteine is very rudimentary. And that's why methylation's profile by doctor's data, it's not as good as health diagnostics, but at least it does look at SAM-SAW and the ratio. Yeah. So, so that's right. The plasma SAM-SAW on the ratio, that's, that's what you find useful in that one. That's right. So another thing we, you just mentioned is some of the reference ranges are a bit different. Is that in a lot of the tests? Because some of these tests are a bit young as well, like the methylation pathways from uh, Vitamin Diagnostics, or it's, it's HRI, as you said uh, now. I'm not sure how much data they actually have in a database to establish what are reference ranges and what kind of populations. So how do you go about looking at reference ranges? You have to remember that, just like you said earlier, a lab test is a snapshot in time. So I'm going to answer your question here a little bit late. So if I get it too off track, you can hit me on the head and I'll, I'll get back to the answer. But in short, a lab test is a snapshot in time. So if you're stressed out and you're stuck in traffic to get to the lab test and somebody cuts you off or there's construction and now you're late and the doctor's bitching you out for being late or the kids are screaming in the back of your car and then you, you draw your blood for the methylation test, it might make some impact. And then if the doctors don't uh, handle your, the lab tech don't handle your sample properly, then there could be some issues there. And then it finally gets to the lab Maybe it gets lost in transit and maybe it's sitting in the back of the FedEx truck for a couple extra days and that sample gets messed up. Maybe it doesn't. So say everything now is still on the way just fine. There's no hiccups. Then the sample gets processed in the lab and it's done by humans and humans can sometimes make errors by adding too much reagent, by being tired and not writing things down properly or the, maybe the computer isn't reset or reconfigured every morning and they didn't do it that morning that properly that day. They put the results on a beautiful PDF that looks fantastic. And they have these little ranges on there. And then you get the results back and you're like, oh, what the hell? This doesn't look right. So you always need to look at a lab as a piece of paper. And you need to match that to your, how your patient is uh, at the moment. So if the lab comes back one way and your patient is completely the opposite, maybe the lab is right. But most likely... I would say I mean, this is possibly a lab error. Now, getting back to the ranges, I know for a fact that the Health Diagnostics Research Institute, their lab values for that methylation test was they tested 100 medical students. Okay, Now, when I was in medical school, I was the sickest I'd ever been in my life. I was tired. I was just run ragged. Med school is just the toughest thing I've ever done in my life besides rowing for UW. And I would say that how healthy were these medical students? Were they drinking? Were they not? I mean, using the word, quote unquote, healthy, 
medical students. I mean, that's such an oxymoron to me. But anyway, so that's where those lab values came from, those ranges. So you have to keep that in mind. The ranges on all lab tests are coming from the population to some degree. So in our population as a whole, pretty sick. I don't know the historical thing, but there's a really good book out there. Do you know it, Damien, that's about homocysteine? Is it, I think it's called, is it, could it be your B12 levels or is it your B12? Ah, yeah, that was one of the first ones. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a pretty good little read. It's pretty basic and it's pretty good to read. And he talks about, uh, I believe, or she talks about the ranges of homocysteine and maybe how they have historically have elevated. And look at arsenic. George W. Bush Jr., he increased arsenic levels that are, quote unquote, safe for, so the safety level of arsenic, that range now has been inflated over time. So the ranges, you got to really um, take those with a grain of salt and again, match it with your patient. And I know some doctors really can really dial in where they want, like their ranges. And it'd be so great if doctors could share their data saying, you know, I find from my clinical experience that this range is the most ideal one. But for some reason, they latch onto these things and they keep that information private. And I, I don't know why. Um, but yeah, um, so homocysteine, I believe a lot of them say that it's greater than 11 for an adult. Some of them even say it's greater than 15. And that's way too high. I would say seven is ideal. You get in anywhere, you know, nine, you definitely have some, some work to do. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm coming back to, uh, we, we spoke a couple of times about supplements and you spoke about people using supplements to lower homocysteine. So some people have, have done some work on their methylation and uh, some of them are taking supplements, like the, the B vitamins, the folates and, and other supplements to support their methylation and they'll feel better. But as you were talking about earlier, the underlying condition, they basically have to take these supplements all the time now to keep themselves going. Is that a good idea? Versus, you know, you were talking about continuing to look for the pathogen or whatever causes it. Are there dangers from supplementing? Or do you think it's a good idea to, say, control symptoms for a while while you're still trying to figure things out and you should always be aiming to get off them? Paleation. I mean, paleation of removing the symptoms and the irritation of whatever's causing disturbance in your patient or, or yourself is quick. I mean, that's what drugs do really fast, super fast, unless they're causing other issues. But I call it drive through medicine. You go to your doctor and you say, you know, I've, I've got a headache and they prescribe aspirin. And maybe your ergonomics at work are not right or maybe you're not drinking enough water. Maybe you're drinking aspartame or you're sucking down caffeine all the time. I mean, there's a million reasons for headaches. But you take an aspirin and the, your body is saying, hey, listen to me and fix it. And you tell it to shut up by taking an aspirin. Now, you're telling it to shut up too if you're taking methyl donors and you're not addressing the alcohol intake that you're drinking every night. I mean, if you're, if you're drinking beers and wines and whiskeys and vodkas all the time, your job as a real estate agent and you, you know, you're celebrating clo- house closings all the time with your patients. Yeah, it's a social thing and it's fun to have your wine, but if your methylation is not appropriate or you have yeast overgrowth in your gut that's inhibiting your methylation or you've got lead toxicity, if you order the lab test, and you see your methylation's messed up due to the lead, and you know you have elevated lead, or, or let's say you don't know you have elevated lead, but you're bypassing it with these methyl donors, these methyl donors only do so much, but the lead is still causing oxidative stress. It's still blocking other pathways that are, have no relation to methylation. And so while some pathways are being bypassed, others aren't. So it's a big deal to address the underlying cause. And let me give you a brief example here. I had a a friend of mine who was drinking, not a lot, but he'd have a few beers every night and uh, he'd wake up 
tired and his kidneys were sore and he was getting kind of sick of it. And he, he asked me what to do. And I told him to quit drinking. And he just kind of looked at me and laughed. And so I said, all right, well, you take some B vitamins. And he took the B vitamins for a while and that helped. But after a while, it didn't. And uh, I said, well, you know, now I know about methylated B vitamins. So take the methylated B vitamins. <laughs> and uh, so he started taking those and he wrote to me and he goes, oh, thanks, man. Now I can drink even more. <laughs> And uh, I wake up in the morning feeling fine. I was like, oh, that really defeated the purpose. So now he's making more, but he feels fine. And then I told him that drinking was a mitochondrial toxin. It was affecting his mitochondria, and that leads to a big issue. And that got him because he was a former athlete too, and he likes to be fit. And so as soon as I told him alcohol is a mitochondrial toxin, he went, oh, crap. And, and he stopped drinking, I mean, pretty darn fast. But he kept going on these methylated B vitamins, and he was taking additional methylated folate and B12 as well. And he was starting to get really irritable and angry before he was just fine. And then he just kept taking it. And he didn't tell me this. And we would talk about what I was doing these days and talking about niacin and people took too much. And so one day I was driving down the highway and he had auditory hallucinations. The radio was off, but he was hearing the radio. He kept cool because he knew it wasn't him. He knew it was, something was wrong. I remember my, you know, Ben telling me that uh, this could happen. And so he stopped the methylfolate and he started taking nice and everything was normalized. And then he stopped taking the methylfolate at all. He just stopped taking it and he reduced the methylated bees and he was, became fine. And so my point is, is he had this environmental trigger that his body had to handle, which was alcohol and acetylaldehyde conversion, you know, converted to acetylaldehyde. So his body was using all these methylated nutrients to clean up that garbage. But as soon as that garbage was no longer coming in, too much of that nutrient now was causing other things. So he stopped it and uh, lowered his dosages significantly. So I usually tell people before they reach for a supplement bottle to understand what it does and if they need it or not. There's a lot of these polymorphisms. Are there any situations where you have a polymorphism in your methylation process where you may have to take a supplement for a long period or maybe forever. Yeah, I don't know what that is yet. But uh, yeah, I, I would say that, let's look at a couple real quick. MTHFR, you're, if you have the 677 homozygous variant, then your ability to make methylfolate is reduced by about 70-80%. So you're making about 20% of methylfolate compared to the standard person who has no MTHFR. Now, if you're eating a lot of leafy greens in general, and you're also eating grass-fed meat, and you're not that stressed out, and you're leaving basically a perfect life, then you might not need methylated folate. I think those with MTHFR 677 might need some methylated folate to some degree pretty much the rest of their life. But if they're getting it through their uncooked leafy greens, and they're definitely eating quite a bit, then... I think they're going to be good through that. Now, if you, there's a paper I talked about, it's on the video of mtfr.net. A lot of that information there is dated, but it's still somewhat pretty, it's still pretty accurate. That video there, it's free. And I show the polymorphisms in various populations like the Chinese and Indians and Hispanics and so on have a very, very high rate of, and Italians too, have a super high rate of mtfr. Now, then I end that, that video and I talk about neural tube defects in Mexico and the United States being related to folate. Then they did another study that looked at neural tube defects, MTHFR, Hispanics, and the Americans, and those were all directly related. The researchers also looked at Italians in MTHFR and neural tube defects, and there was no correlation. 
So the neural tube defects in Italy, these people, their lifestyle seems very protective, even despite the empty Jafar polymorphisms over there. So they eat a lot of salads and they drink a bit of wine that's a little bit as good, too much not. And their lifestyle is a lot less hectic than us Americans. We chase this American dream, which is just a complete nightmare for people. So the American dream is the American nightmare. I think it should be renamed. And then if you look at another gene, um, GAMT of creatine, I think people with the GAMT polymorphism may benefit from taking creatine, some form of creatine, or, or at least eating meat. If you're a vegetarian, if you have GAMT, you're probably going to be in trouble. So it's interesting, some kind of, it can inform your lifestyle choices as well. Yeah, and vegetarians and vegans, I was a vegetarian for a while, and I felt terrible. And looking at my genes, I think I could understand why. Plus, I didn't know how to be a, a vegetarian properly. I was a carbitarian. I didn't eat properly. I think if you're a vegetarian and you know how to eat very well, and you're supplementing with choline, creatine, phosphatidylcholine, and uh, B12, then I think you can be okay. But some of the most ill people I've worked with are vegans and vegetarians. And I would say the majority of women that have had recurrent miscarriage or can't get pregnant were vegans or vegetarians. So in most pregnant women, whether they're vegans or vegetarians or not, most pregnant women are deficient in choline. And most cancers, uh, cancer patients are deficient in choline as well. So choline is a very, very important nutrient. And that, that comes from meat, plain and simple. And our friend liver in particular. And our yeah. friend liver, yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks for all of those insights. Uh, it's really good. I want to round off with just a couple of questions, a bit more about where you see things going over the longer term. So in the next five or 10 years, this whole area of methylation, where would you hope it would go or what kind of things are you excited about this area? Well, I'm most excited about disease prevention with it. And I think if it's utilized properly, meaning still focusing on lifestyle and diet and the basics, I think if there's a company like 23andMe that provides very clinically relevant polymorphisms, not a million polymorphisms that may mean nothing, but reducing it down to one eight and a half by 11 report of genetic polymorphisms that are very clinically relevant, that have been researched, can bypass through lifestyle, diet, and nutrients. I think that would be very, very useful because right now there's a lot of polymorphisms that are published that may or may not have any clinical relevance. And I think that the 23andMe has a, even that MTTVR supporter genetic genie, I think there's variants on that, that test report that are, that are bogus. Bogus meaning no clinical relevance. I would like to see variations that are clinically relevant with actionable steps and understanding how to take action on them in simple, systematic ways and not so complex and convoluted, which I know some of my presentations can be. I'm trying to simplify things. And it would be really cool, too, is to have some type of computer program that looks at all the polymorphisms that that individual has, along with their lab markers that are off, along with their diet and lifestyle and heavy metal exposures and so on, you plug all that information into a database, uh, the computer program will spit out some generalized recommendations for the physician to evaluate, such as pathogens or heavy metal screening or some certain things to look for, or nutrients that they absolutely must be taking and nutrients and meds that they absolutely should be avoiding. So computerizing this, I think, would be making it a lot more actionable and also prenatal screening. I think every person now should be taking some type of uh, genetic screening that's actionable. There's things out there called counsel, C-O-U-N-S-Y-L, that looks at genetics 
that cause issues in the fetus during development. And why that test is useful, it also scares the hell out of the future patient or the future parents. And having fear while you're pregnant is definitely no good because fear also messes up your methylation and a bunch of other pathways and blood flow to the baby. So if you order a test that has actionable things which they can do through diet and lifestyle and the, and the mother knows that, and so is the father, because the father genetics also is significantly you know, important for the baby development too, then I think that's the way to go. So I think that in a nutshell for disease prevention um, is important. And also mitochondrial disorders are really severe and you see a lot of early death in people who have mitochondrial dysfunction. And as you may remember from the Chicago conference, I talked about maternally inherited mitochondrial disorders because mitochondria are basically inherited from the mother. If you see a list of diseases that are all down from the mother's side of the family or the women's side of the family, then it's probably a mitochondrial disorder. And if you do a genetic testing on that, you might be able to support the mitochondria immediately through NADH, CoQ10, and glutathione, and so on. So again, I think through disease prevention, automation, and uh, specific targeted uh, recommendations is where I'd like to see it. Yeah. In terms of tests, is there anything that you see missing? I know mitochondria tests, for example, you mentioned Sarah Myhill. I know she has a, a test she's doing, but I don't know many other tests. Are there any uh, tests you feel would be useful that aren't yet available or uh, are hard to access or they need further development? Or Yeah, tons of them. And I'd love to see this stuff on one panel. And I have notes on these things, trying to get other labs to look at it. So Acumen Labs, A-C-U-M-E-N, right? That's over in Wales or UK. Myhill uh, promotes and works with a lot. Again, tests like this, not spend too much time on it, but uh, they're looking at a snapshot of ATP, ATP utilization, and, and, and so on. The, some of those tests look at causation too. So I would say that's, those are good tests, but would I necessarily order those? If they're not too expensive, yeah. If they're expensive, no. And the reason that why is because if I see lactate elevated on a patient, lactate is a, it's a very readily available marker. So if lactate is elevated, then I know immediately that the mitochondria in this patient are suffering along with uh, lipid peroxidation. If a lipid peroxidation is elevated, then we know their cell membranes are getting damaged. If their cell membranes are damaged, then their mitochondria are going to be damaged. I want to give you the markers now that are already available. So lactate, lipid peroxidation are great. Ammonia elevation is also a marker of mitochondrial dysfunction because mitochondria process ammonia for the most part. So if that's elevated, then we know the mitochondria aren't working very well. Carnitine is a great one for that. So it's just general mitochondrial support. Also looking at... Um, yes, you mentioned that was difficult to access. Yeah. Is that urine or is that... Plat or is that I don't know. I don't know what is better. I think blood lactate can be either, but I know urinary lactate is available. And I don't know. I don't know about pyruvate. And now looking at B12, B12 is a nightmare. There's really no test that I... Well, I shouldn't say that. Holotranscobalamin and methylmalonic acid are pretty good for B12. You can look for macrocytic anemias too, elevated MCH, MCV, but those can be missed because you could have normalized MCV, MCH, and still have a mast anemia because of folate. So a mast B12 anemia, I should say. So you want to be looking at methylmonic acid. You want to be looking at holotranscobalamin. But the issue with B12 is if there's low glutathione, reading about this now, I have a bunch of papers on it actually, but glutathione is needed to carry B12 around. And so if the patient has low glutathione, their B12 levels look might, may look elevated on the lab test, 
and serum cobalamin. So serum levels of pretty much anything are not that useful. You want to look at intracellular if it's an intracellular nutrient. And we know that B12 has to get into the cell. So if you see a serum folate and serum cobalamin elevated and your red blood cell B12 and folate, I know spectra cell looks at T lymphocyte testing for B12 and folates, and that's, that's intracellular. So that could be really useful for people. Now, to answer your te- question about tests that I want to see in the future, I want to see oxidation. I want to see oxidized biopterin and reduced biopterin. These labs are looking at biopterin, but they're not telling you if it's oxidized or reduced. And if your biopterin levels are oxidized, say your biopterin levels are normal, but your patient still is having neurological symptoms or cardiovascular symptoms, or they're having some type of mental emotional imbalance, biopterin is really critical for this because biopterin recycles. It helps convert your tryptophan into serotonin and your tyrosine into dopamine and your arginine into nitric oxide for your cardiovascular system. So if these things, if you have oxidized biopterin, but your biopterin levels are normal, then this is going to be an issue. So oxidative stress, if you measure oxidative stress, this is why I also recommend looking at multiple tests at once, not just one at a time. This is a beautiful reason why. So if their B12 levels are elevated and their folate levels are elevated in their serum, if their biopterin levels are normal, but their oxidative stress is high, and you know their oxidative stress is high through their lipid peroxidation, their lactate, and their glutathione levels are low, the glutathione peroxidase enzyme is high, their superoxide dismutase levels are high, or their manganese levels are low, and their zinc levels are low, and so on. If you put all these together, you can immediately understand and say, hey, your oxidative stress is high. It's disturbing all of these enzymes downstream. It's messing up your glutathione, it's messing up your biopterin, your B12, your folates, your cells. We got to get that oxidative stress down, but we need to understand why your oxidative stress is elevated in the first place. So you can bypass the need for these new tests that I wanted to come up with if you order all these different things at once, but it's expensive. It's a pain in the ass. It's time consuming. So it'd be better if you could sniper straight to it's kind of like you're having to take these proxies and these indicators rather than getting directly at the issue. Yeah, inflammatory cytokines are, are can be really useful to look at. You know, IL-1, 6, 10, all these different cytokines. And then if you look at TNF-alpha, these are come back elevated, then that's going to be a problem. But again, why are they elevated? These mess up things too. But I'd like to see different forms of B12. I'd like to see adenosylcobalamin. I'd like to see cobalamin itself. I'd like to see an oxidized cobalamin. I think that would be very, very useful. Right, right. Especially with so many people supplementing these kind of things. Yeah, if they're taking B12 and most of that B12 is going to oxidize cobalamin, which is causing more damage into their body, then they need to be stopped taking that B12, support the glutathione. But if they can't support the glutathione because they're reacting to the sulfur or they're not hydrated enough, that's a problem. You know, if they have urinary they're not peeing well for various reasons because of dehydration or, or what have you, taking glutathione would be a big problem. Or if they're sensitive to sulfites, glutathione, if you take glutathione, it can build up your cysteine levels. Then your cysteine levels go down and they make sulfites. That could be a problem too. So if people feel like crap taking glutathione, it could be they're not hydrated or their cell membranes are not appropriate. They're not healthy or their sulfites are messed up, too elevated. So it's it gets tricky fast as you saw in, in Chicago, because I tried to teach all this in an hour and a half, just like we're talking now for an hour and a half. But the point is, you just take this stuff, you listen to it, you re-listen. And if you glean one or two things from this, that's great. And then you listen to it again, you might glean something else, or you might have an aha moment 
for this particular pathway in one patient and aha moment for a different part of this a conversation in another patient. So it's uh, bit by bit. So you're obviously doing a lot of work on this uh, in research. Uh, what are kind of the most important things coming up for you in that area? What are you working on right now, maybe for the next year? What's most interesting for you? What's most interesting for me right now is why people react unfavorably to certain nutrients like methylfolate, B12, glutathione, and so on. And, and then understanding how to identify these patients before they even take these nutrients to say, hey, you have this and this and this, you need to optimize this and this and this before you take this and this. That's what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to prevent patients from flaring by identifying where they are currently and if they can respond to a particular nutrient or not and giving the reason why. That's what I'm working on because I know the majority of patients who are under 30 or, or even under 40 and are not too bad, a lot of them can be taking these methyl donors and feel great. But you start getting in the conundrum cases, the Lyme patients, the you know, autistic patients, and, and so on, and uh, the cancer patients. And if you start with them out of order, you can flare them. If you flare them, you lose patient compliance, you lose trust. It can take longer for them to get better. So what I'm doing now is trying to do that workflow. And part of that workflow it seems simple when I say it like that, but the issue is I'm tying it into the mitochondria and I'm tying it into hormones and inflammation. So I've always had a big hole in hormones and I'm so I'm looking at hormonally related connections, but if you look at hormones, how are hormones affected? Well, they're affected by methylation and inflammation and mitochondrial function. And as Sarah Myhol so eloquently stated in her recent book that every single pathway in the body is affected by mitochondria. So my biggest focus right now is mitochondrial health, which is where I'm reading her book because she's very well versed in it. Um, I agree with a lot of things in her book. She's provided me quite a bit of insight. I also disagree with a few things in her book, but that's how medicine is. You know, none of us are perfect and I say things that are wrong and we'll collaborate and I'll, I'll give Sarah a call or an email here at some point after I finish her book. And, but what I'm working on now is that and and when I was at, at that part two conference at Bastyr and there was 300 docs there and I asked them, I said, you know, what do you want me focusing on next? And a few things were brought up and then I asked them, what about mitochondria? And the whole room just was an uproar. But right now it, it's mitochondria and it's, it's uh, yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah. Have you connected with Dr. Wall, uh, Dr. Terry Wall? No, I haven't. I know of her book. I know what she went through. I've read her book. I haven't connected with her yet, but yeah, she's another one I need to get into. And her book was pretty basic for me but uh yeah she definitely recovered yeah, which was yeah. beautiful i spoke to her a couple of weeks back so maybe i can connect you with her if that's interesting for you that'd be great yeah definitely would be and my whole thing too is is all about collaboration the stuff i'm working on is the stuff that i want to give out and give people i'm not holding and hoarding if i'm able to help a doctor or two or or a thousand that's my ultimate goal here so the more doctors i can work with and collaborate with the better. And the more feedback you'll get as well. So that's useful to you as well. So Yeah, exactly. Every doctor out there is, they've got something that I don't know. So Terry's going to have something I don't know for sure. And then she might answer the puzzles faster than me sitting here in my, my <laughs> office digging through PubMed and just like, oh God, I wish I knew that 10 years ago. Yeah. Collaboration is definitely the way to go. Mm -hmm. So what would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use data to help them with the area of methylation, is there one piece of advice you would give them? Don't be biased. Look for bias. I don't know if that's what you're going for, but uh, 
bias is a big problem in research. So if you're reading papers and you're trying to, to gather data or you yourself are working on a particular project, make sure that you are limiting bias. And I say that because when I got called in to present to the Cancer Treatment Centers of America and they wanted me to talk about MTHFR, I quickly told them and said, look, you know, cancer is more than just about MTHFR. And I could have presented on an hour and a half on how MTHFR is related to cancer, but I would have done them a major disservice because there's a lot of articles out there and papers that talk about MTHFR and how it's not related. So I could have presented an hour and a half of totally biased research. And when I say biased, I mean personal bias. I mean, you know, some of these papers on MTHFR and cancer, a lot of them are totally legitimate, you know, saying that MTHFR isn't related and, and some of them saying it is. I think it's bigger picture than this. And that's another thing. Keep the bigger picture. So if you, you dial down into saying MTHFR is not related to gastric cancer and some paper says it is, you need to understand the bigger picture. You got to zoom out. So keep the bigger picture when you're collecting data. You can't forget the basics of diet and lifestyle. And I, I think that's so hugely important. And uh, compliance is super important. And however you get your patients compliant, whether it is you get a 23andMe or MTHFR test and you plop down in front of them and say, hey, you're, you're a mutant, or you tell them that mitochondria is getting destroyed from your alcohol, you got to find that pain point for that particular individual to get them compliant. So but anyway, I would say keeping the bigger picture, don't zoom in too close and uh, make sure that you're not being biased and you're not reading papers that are biased. Great, great. Thanks for that. Very good. Okay, last question. Looking at yourself, is there any data metric or biometrics that you track for your own body on a routine basis, yearly or whatever it is? I look at fatigue for my own. I don't look at data points. I look at my fatigue and my mental capacity and my moods. I look at a few data points with me personally. So if I am more tired than I should be, then I ask myself why and I review what I've eaten, if I've been more stressed or if I'm not exercising or exercise too hard. And uh, I'm 40 years old now and uh, you hit 40 and your mitochondria is slowing down more and more. So I would say I look at uh, my ability to think and my ability to maintain endurance, not only mentally, but also physically. Muscle mass, I think, is super important because the more muscle you have, the more mitochondria you have. And so I'm going to be starting lifting again here, here soon so I can store my glycogen and, and make more ATP. Muscle mass is a very important marker to look at. I'm not going to be the Incredible Hulk by any means, but I'm 213 pounds now. I don't know what my body fat is, probably 10 to 15. But when I was rowing at UW, I was 213 pounds and I was 4% body fat. I'm not going to be 4% body fat again, probably, but uh, I definitely want to be. I look at leanness and weight and the ratio of, of muscle to fat. So I think being fit is uh, the marker that I'm focusing on right now. Great, thanks for that. Those are very interesting ones. Also the mood is um, something I think a lot of people, they don't think too much about. They think, oh, I'm in a bad mood today. But do you always kind of relate that to something that might have gone on? Do you always think there might be some biological basis or could it just be stressful events? And well, yeah, great question. And I think you're absolutely right. If there's a stressful event, you need to understand that. But you should be able to adapt to a stressful event. And it's interesting, I was just at this conference last week and you know how loud noises can sometimes make people jump? I was sitting there and the room was absolutely dark. People were holding up candles. It was the end of the conference. This is this little ceremony that they do every time, which is really cool. And so they turn off the lights and hold up candles and it was quiet for a long time. I was thinking, okay, this is gonna be really interesting. How are they gonna end this period of silence? Are they somebody gonna scream and whoop and go crazy? Or what's, is it gonna be a gong of a bell? What is it? And so I kept waiting for it and all of a sudden, the band behind us just laid into it. 
really loud. And the woman next to me, she jumped and I was just calm as could be. So your ability to adapt to stress is so important. So that's again, why we started this whole conversation today about adapting to stress and adrenals. And so I think adaptogens are, are really important, but your original question of moods. So if I'm stressed, if I'm too stressed, I immediately know that I need to be focusing on my adaptogens, you know, uh, licorice and withania, oats, uh, melissa, what have you, and uh, eating smaller meal, smaller amounts, but yet more frequently with some type of protein and healthy carbohydrate and veggie is, is super important. And not only eating it, but chewing it well and absorbing it is uh, even more important. But uh, if I'm moody when I wake up, something's wrong. And I have to say that I don't wake up in moods. I don't wake up on the wrong side of the bed anymore. Uh, I might wake up tired or foggy headed because I'm working too hard or I stayed up too late, but I don't wake up pissed off or irritable or sad. I don't have those moods. And if I do get mad, I've got three boys and they can definitely uh, put you over the edge sometimes. But I always look inward in that situation and say, okay, why am I doing this? Do I need more support in something? Because I'm MT Javar compound heterozygous and uh, I've got histamine SNPs, I've got GAD SNPs. And, and when I say GAD, I, GAD is a big one. So I'm more prone to have a lot of glutamate in my head compared to GABA because the GAD enzyme works with converting glutamate to GABA. And so I'm very conscious of this. And so I'll take some more magnesium and B6 if I notice I'm a little bit on edge and protein for me is very, very important. But no, your mood is super important. If people are moody, depressed, sad, glad, sad and glad, or glad is, is great. But if they're overly glad, then <laughs> something might be off too. Right, right. Just what you were saying about yourself, how you understand your own biology, thanks to some of the work you've done on methylation, you understand that protein is important to you. Some certain vitamins might help you if you're in a mood and stuff. You can see how important this is to inform potentially our lifestyles. And it could be just like, oh, I need to eat a bit more of liver or whatever it is um, at the moment because my mood's a bit off or whatever. So it's, it's an incredible area, this methylation. I'd really like to thank you for all the information you've shared today. It's uh, been really amazing. Yeah, and, and one thing too, Damien, is when I presented in the part two conference at Bastyr, I talked about how important food was from a, a research standpoint because there's a lot of MDs that come to my conferences and they don't have any nutrition training to speak of. And so I talk about uh, nutrition and how important it is and I talked about how carbohydrates increase serotonin and proteins increase proteins increase your dopamine. So, and you think, well, wait a minute, proteins also increase your serotonin, but, but tryptophan is very tough to absorb. So that's why carbs can increase the serotonin. So if people are down and out and they get addicted to carbs, you need to understand and sit back, well, why are they doing this? Maybe because they're trying to selectively increase their tryptophan levels because they eat protein, they're not really getting the tryptophan because the tyrosine competes with it. So my point here is the, the last paper I presented on this is that if the person eats a fair amount of protein and consistently 75 grams is what they used. And I think they use 75 grams because the average weight of a person is about 150 pounds. So 75 grams, 75 kilos, you know, 75 grams of protein, 75 uh, kilos of weight. This is a really rudimentary measure of how much protein you get. But my point is here, the people who ate adequate protein in a day had consistent neurotransmitter balance. So if you eat adequate amounts of protein, your neurotransmitters get balanced. So not only if you're eating it, but you got to absorb it. So you have to make sure your absorption is also good. So people who have difficulty absorbing it is an issue. But again, my point is here, 
if you're eating a carb-based diet because you're sad and you just want to increase your serotonin levels, or but you don't know why you're eating the carbs, that could be one reason. But just eat more protein and that might be the answer. Yeah. Well, thanks. As I say again, this has been really amazing and information-filled. And I know uh, the audience is really going to learn from a lot from this. Good. Well, thanks, Damien, for uh, asking fantastic questions. I mean, you asked some fantastic questions that no other interviewer has asked me before. So thanks for that. And yeah, I think people are going to get some good information from this. To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at verquantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.